You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing on our series um, on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratun Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography. We have been speaking about the fifth, uh, the end, the fourth and the fifth year of Nubuwa, of prophethood, the fourth and the fifth year of the Prophet sallallahu message um, in the city of Mecca. So this is the first four or five years of the Sirah. And particularly in terms of the fourth year of the seerah, what we've been talking about and what we've seen is that the Prophet of Allah's message went public, the flow of people accepting Islam has steadily been increasing, both within Mecca and even from outside of Mecca. You increasingly have these instances, so these rare occasions, these anomalies started to become commonplace where almost every other day, once a week, couple of times a week, you had somebody coming in from other areas, from out of town, hearing about this message, finding the Prophet ﷺ, interacting with him and then accepting Islam. And in some cases they were staying there back in Mecca, and in most cases they were being sent back to their people. So you see that slowly but steadily Islam is continuing to grow, and the numbers of the Muslims are continuing to increase and diversify. And for obvious reason, this is uh, of great concern to the people in Mecca. And the Quraysh and the leadership of the Quraysh is not happy with this trend at all. What we talked about in the previous session was that they, or actually in the past few previous sessions, we've talked about how they decided to kind of strategize. They decided that we need some strategy to our response. So one of the strategies that they had was, okay, let's go to Abu Talib and tell Abu Talib that, come on, you need to check your nephew, you need to get him under control. He's becoming a real problem here for us. So we saw, obviously, that that did not end up working and that didn't turn out so well, because Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, first and foremost calls the Prophet ﷺ, and when the Prophet ﷺ makes a very impassioned plea to Abu Talib, about what the Prophet ﷺ is trying to accomplish, Abu Talib instead puts his support behind the Prophet ﷺ and tells him, nephew, you do what you have to do. I'm right here behind you, by your side, I'm not going anywhere. My support for you is unwavering. <clears throat> Secondly, Abu Talib himself decides that I need to, I need to basically be able to at least provide protection to the Prophet ﷺ and use the sense of loyalty that the people of Mecca, the Quraysh is so big on, use that to my advantage and the Prophet's advantage. So what Abu Talib does, he gathers Banu Hashim together and says basically, look, we're all about respect for the family, respect for the tribe, we stick with our own. Muhammad is one of our own. Whether you agree with him or not, you cannot deny the fact that he's one of us. He's the grandson of the great Abdul Muttalib. So we got we to gotta protect ourselves. Because fine, you might not agree with Muhammad, but if they come and they attack Muhammad or they kill Muhammad, well guess what? They've disrespected you and your family. And what are you going to say about that? Tomorrow then they'll disrespect you as well, directly. So then Banu Hashim puts a public statement out there saying, Muhammad is untouchable. Nobody lay a hand on Muhammad wasallam. So this was one strategy of the Quraysh that they had that really didn't work out. A second strategy of the Quraysh was, okay, let's intellectually try to challenge Muhammad So what they decide to do is, and we talked about this in the last session, they basically go to Utbah bin Rabi'ah, who was a great leader of the Quraysh, a very well-educated, respected, well-traveled man. And he goes to the Prophet and basically reprimands him like an elder. This was a man that even Abu Jahl used to go to counsel for. So his authority and his wisdom was, you know, unanimously accepted in Mecca. So he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and as an elderly statesman, someone reprimands the Prophet ﷺ.
And the Prophet ﷺ, this is the wisdom and the hikmah of the Prophet ﷺ, that instead of responding to him directly, because there was only one of two, if an elderly person reprimands you, doesn't ask you, but reprimands you, there's one of two things you do. Either you apologize, in which case you are basically, you know, you're, you're, you're admitting that you were wrong. So either you apologize and therefore concede, so it's a concession, which would not be correct because the Prophet ﷺ would be moving off of his stance, then no, I'm right. And he was right. Or you tell him, no, I'm right and you're wrong. And in that case, what are you doing? You're disrespecting an elder. Which contradicts the, the morals of the Qur'an, the values of the Qur'an. It directly contradicts the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ. And if the goal and the objective is your people and winning over the favor of your people, then what it does in that particular case is, it actually sets you back in your own cause. Because now the people say, look at this man. Look how he speaks to our elders. He doesn't even have any dignity or respect or honor for anyone. So the Prophet ﷺ very intelligently, very wisely, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ just says, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And he begins reciting Surah number 41, Surah Fussilat. What happens as a result and a consequence of that, and the Prophet ﷺ very interestingly chooses Surah Fussilat, that it has such an impact on Utbah, Abu Walid Utbah, that he goes back to his people just completely dumbfounded, literally disappears for a couple of days, finally comes back out with a public statement saying that, and he actually tells some of the leadership of the Quraysh that this is unlike anything I've ever heard. This is not magic, it's not poetry, it's none of these things. But, you know, this is unlike anything I've ever heard. This is not man-made. And then finally, you know, obviously the leadership of Quraysh goes to him and say, we can't afford this. We cannot afford this right now. Because everybody looks to you. We can't have you also going over to that side. So finally he comes out and makes a very false, unfortunate public statement that, oh, it was very strong magic, unlike which I've ever interacted or encountered. So therefore it had such an impact and effect on me that it took me a couple of days to recover. And what you saw from me initially as a reaction was just that magic literally hitting me in the face. It hit me like a train. And so I didn't know. I was just kind of dumbfounded, dumbstruck by it. So this is his response. And we talked about how the Prophet ﷺ was very upset at this response of Utbah and how Allah disapproved of this. One of the things that um, I forgot to mention was that the ayat of Surah Al-Muddathir have been mentioned in regards to Utbah, but they are also mentioned in regards to Walid bin Mughira. And uh, Walid bin Mughira was another leader of the Quraysh, not quite of the stature or the level of Utbah. Utbah was more of a cultured individual, whereas Walid bin Mughira was more of a political leader of the Quraysh. Walid bin Mughira also confronts the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ recites the Quran to him as well, and it literally his colors start to change, and he gets freaked out, and he comes back to the Quraysh, and then similarly he says that, oh, this is just fancy poetry that Muhammad has come up with. And what happens as a result and a consequence of that is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the ayat in surah number 74, saying, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically says, leave me to deal with that liar, that we gave him all of these blessings and what he does at the end of all of that is he lies and he slanders and he speaks false. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will deal with him. And I will deal with him very severely and very sternly. So this was the second strategy of the Quraysh. And the third strategy of the Quraysh to counter the message of the Prophet ﷺ, which we've talked about was torture, physical aggression, violence. And that became very overwhelming. Especially when the first two strategies failed, they kept falling back on this third strategy. Till the time finally came at the beginning of the fifth year of the message of the Prophet ﷺ, where they basically were full, the violence and the aggression was full scale. And a couple of sessions ago, we talked about a small sampling of that and how severe it was. The violence, the aggression, the oppression, how really severe it was and how it was unbearable for the Muslims. At that point in time, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ did something which shows us a lot about the Prophet ﷺ. 
The Prophet of Allah basically gathered many of the weak and the oppressed of the Muslims together and he basically told them that it is time for you to now go and take refuge. You need to go and find a safe place to live where you will not be violated or you will not be oppressed and you can live safely and freely. It is time for you to go outside of Mecca and go find a place and live at a place like this. And the place the Prophet ﷺ had in mind that he specifically told them to go to was Abyssinia, Eastern Africa, the Horn of Africa. And the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, at this point in time, it, this tells us a lot about the Prophet ﷺ. First and foremost, the numbers of the Muslims are finally reaching a good level. By this time, there are well over a hundred believers, which gives the Muslims strength, gives them community, gives them you know, support and solidarity. But the Prophet of Allah in spite of that, he puts that aside and he puts the well-being, the safety, the security, the life, the property of his followers first. He gives that priority. And he says that their safety is more important to me than having, a larger num- having larger numbers in a larger community. And that shows great, that shows great wisdom on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. And that shows what an empathetic leader he was. That empathy and the well-being and the safety of his followers was his primary concern. So he puts that first and foremost and says, I'm willing to lose their numbers in Mecca as long as they can find safe you know, refuge. They can be saved, they can find refuge there in Abyssinia. So this is the first thing that the Prophet ﷺ takes into consideration. Secondly, the scholars also mention the fact that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ understood that in the position of being a leader, it was his job and his responsibility to be well informed. To be well educated and well informed. And to understand, you know, what were the options that were available. And so the Prophet ﷺ, if you will, had done his research. He had found out that there is a Christian king. So first and foremost, the fact that he is a follower of a you know, revealed religion, monotheistic faith, identifies with the idea of scripture and prophethood and nubuwa and life of the year after, that first and foremost we have more common ground with him than we do with these people, these idol-worshipping people in Quraysh. <clears throat> Secondly, and Najashi, the king of Abyssinia, was well known for his religious tolerance. To the extent that there is, historically, there is the mention of the fact that there were many religious minorities, many minority communities that lived in his kingdom at that time. From Jews to even idol worshippers, fire worshippers, Majusiyun, there were many different religious minorities that safely lived there under his protection. And so the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, having researched this issue, was well informed. And that also shows us that it is the responsibility of leadership to also be well informed about the things that are going on in the other, um, you know, other nations and other people and other communities and keep tabs on these types of things. Lastly, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, sent them to Abyssinia and put this option on the table for them that you have to understand that even going to Abyssinia was not an easy path, was not an easy road. But the Prophet of Allah ﷺ understood that some people will prefer undertaking an arduous journey as long as there's some type of safety on the other side of this. And so the Prophet of Allah ﷺ researches this, finds out that yes, this safe um, community is present there. And then the Prophet of Allah ﷺ provides this option and this opportunity to some of the oppressed Muslims in Mecca at that time. <clears throat> so it's mentioned in the books of hadith, in the books of narration, that in the month of Rajab, from the fifth year of prophethood, so this is a little bit past the middle of the, of the fifth year of the message in Mecca, that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ gathered some of the believers in Mecca together and basically said, I want to propose for those who would like to, who need to, that they go to Abyssinia and they migrate there 
and they explore the opportunity of living there freely and safely. And it said that at that time about 16 people, the first initial group of people who went were some narrations say 15, some say 16. Because one of the names is somewhat discussed or disputed. So about 15 to 16 people, out of them there were 11 or 12 were men and 4 women. The 4 women who went were wives of 4 of the gentlemen who were going. And the rest of the men who went, the sahaba who went, they were single, they were not married. But yet they were the object of severe violence and oppression. And so this initial group of 15, 16 people, they set out. And their names are actually recorded and mentioned. It said that the... Um, there, the first ones that the Prophet of Allah basically designated to migrate to Abyssinia was none other than Uthman bin Affan radiallahu anhu who was tied up, who was uh, held hostage and captive by his own family. And Uthman radiallahu anhu was a very dignified person before Islam. I talked about him. And now he was one of those people who is said to never have drank alcohol or fornicated or done anything bad be even before Islam. And he came from a very powerful, wealthy family as well. But the thing was that his own family was the, were the ones who were oppressing him. His own, family, his own family were the ones who were torturing him. And so the Prophet of Allah picked Uthman radiallahu anhu. The, the wife of Uthman radiallahu anhu was Ruqayyah, the daughter of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The second of the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet of Allah ﷺ first designated this couple. He then also designated um, Abu Hudayfa bin Utbah and his wife Sahla. Zubair bin Awam, Musab bin Umair, Abdurrahman bin Auf, Abu Salama and his wife Ummu Salama, who would later on, after Abu Salama would pass away, would become the wife of the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. Uthman bin Mad'oon, Amr bin Rabi'ah, and his wife Layla bint uh, Abu Hathma, Abu Sabra, and then the sixth one who is disputed, some say it was Hatim bin Amr, some say it was Abdullah bin Mas'ud, but the more authentic narration says that Abdullah bin Mas'ud actually went with the second wave of immigrants, which we'll talk about in just a second, but the sixteenth one who is disputed is Hatim bin Amr. So these were the first sixteen people um, who migrated to Abyssinia, left Mecca and went to East Africa. And it said that they basically left at night, they snuck out at night out of Mecca, they did not even have enough rides, in, enough animals, transportation for all of them to be riding these animals. So some of them were taking turns riding the animals, and the people who were couples, the husband and wife couples, basically the wives were riding the animals and the husbands were leading those animals. So between about 15, 16 people, they had maybe seven or eight animals to ride. And they were basically taking turns on these rides and that's basically how they left. And they snuck out in the middle of the night. When morning time finally came and people looked around and realized that these people were gone, Quraysh basically put together a group of people, a search party and send them out. Go and find them. They looks like they're trying to run away. And they didn't even want to let them run away. You have to understand the violent mindset of, these, uh, of some of the leadership of Quraysh, the people in Mecca. That it wasn't just enough that they wanted to force this element outside of Mecca, but they were chasing them. And they didn't even want to let them live on their own and become free and escape. But they wanted to drag them back to Mecca and keep them under torture. And continue to torture them. So this was how violent these people were. So they sent a search party out. It said that the immigrants, the, 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 the people who were emigrating, these people who were escaping Mecca, the Muslims, they finally reached a port by uh, the name of... Some of the books of Sirah actually mention the name. I believe it's by the name of Suhaiban, but I'm not sure. Um, so they reached this port regardless. And from there they were able to, and the narration mentions, that they had very limited funds because they were sneaking out. And most of these people were being held hostage or were in captivity for years and years leading up to this moment. So they had very little money together, very little food rations together. And it said they had half a dinar. Half a dinar is basically half a gold coin. 
And Allah knows best what that would be the equivalent to, but that would maybe be, you know, they had a couple of hundred bucks. They had a couple of hundred bucks that was somewhat of their, you know, escape fund. And when they reached the port finally, they spoke to a man who had a small boat, and they basically said that we need to cross over into Eastern Africa. And here's all we have. And he basically took that as his payment and they were able to rent a boat and, and, and a crew to sail them there. And they basically escaped. So by the time the search party reached the, the, the port, the Muslims had already departed. They had already left. And they were gone. And these people, the search party returned back to Mecca with the news that they had already been gone. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ, because of the fragile state of the Muslims at that time, he really didn't have any direct you know, news or any direct way to receive information as to what was going on with these people. But the Prophet of Allah ﷺ was very curious what exactly transpired, what happened with them. So the narration mentions the, that the... Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he hears about someone um, coming from that direction, coming from Abyssinia. He hears about somebody coming from Abyssinia. This was maybe a non-Muslim person, a trader, a businessman. So he hears about somebody coming from Abyssinia and the Prophet sallallahu specifically searched out that person. And the Prophet of Allah asked him, he goes, have you heard about some people leaving Mecca and going towards Abyssinia, going towards Habasha? And the man said, yes, I heard about some people. And he, then the Prophet specifically asked him, he goes, did you know any... And he goes, first, so first he asked him, how, how are they doing? And he goes, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I've heard, that they've reached there into Habasha safely. And the Prophet was very grateful for receiving this news. And he asked him specifically, and this shows you that the Prophet of Allah was a father. He was a, he was a family man. The Prophet specifically says that, were you able to see these people, interact with these people? And he goes, yeah, I actually saw them arrive and I was able to actually talk to some of them. And he goes, there was a couple who would be the leaders amongst this entire group. And he was basically talking about Uthman bin Affan and his own daughter, Ruqayyah. And he goes, were you, able, maybe, were you able to see the leaders of the group? And he goes, yeah, there was a couple, they seemed to be the leaders. They were kind of you know, taking care of everybody else. And, and the Prophet ﷺ became very excited. And he asked him that, ala ayyi halin ra'aytahuma? Ala ayyi halin ra'aytahuma? Uh, uh, and then this, this person tells the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, ra'aytuhu qad hamila imra'atahu ala himarin min hadhihi dababa wa huwa yasuquha. The, the man tells the Prophet ﷺ that the last I saw them, they were entering into Abyssinia, that the man, the husband, had put his wife on top of a, uh, a mule. That the wife was riding a mule and the husband was holding the rope of that mule, leading it forward. And it was a very slow, weak animal. Because of the limited funds that they had, it was a very slow, weak animal. And the wife was riding, the woman was riding the mule, and the husband was basically leading the mule. And that's the last time that I saw them. The Prophet of Allah was very relieved at this news. And he had said, Sahibahum Allah. Sahibahum Allah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be with them. May Allah be their companion in their journey. May Allah take care of them. May Allah be with them. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, Inna Uthman awwalu man hajara bi ahlihi ba'da Lut alayhi salam. That Uthman has revived a great tradition of the Prophets of the past. That Uthman is the first one to migrate, leave his home for the sake of his faith and his iman with his family since Lut alayhi salam did that. That he's the first one to travel and leave his home. To 
to for the sake of his iman and his Islam since Lut So the Prophet gave a compliment to Uthman radiallahu anhu, and basically this was a virtue of Uthman radiallahu anhu. And then the Prophet also made dua for them. You know one other thing that this also tells us? This also dispels the notion or the idea that somehow these Muslims who chose to leave Mecca and go to Abyssinia were weaker than the Muslims who stayed behind. There's no credence, nor is there any credibility to this line of thinking. That is an incorrect conclusion. And some of the Khawarij, when they came out and they sieged Medina later on during the Khilafah of Uthman radiallahu anhu, when they laid siege against the city of Medina and they were, um, they were trying to assassinate and eventually did assassinate and kill Uthman radiallahu anhu, they were making these types of accusations. Oh, Uthman, they were saying that um, Uthman was a coward and look, he ran away from Mecca and went to Abyssinia and he didn't stick it there, stick it through in Mecca and do what needed to be done. And they were trying to say things like this. There's no credence or credibility to that fact. But the Prophet actually spoke of the virtue of these people. He complimented these people. And the Prophet is making dua for these people. So there is no credence or credibility to this fact. But nevertheless, we see here that the Prophet ﷺ at the end of the day, being a father is very concerned about his daughter and what's going on with her and inquires about her well-being and her health. And is very relieved and makes dua to find out that she is doing okay and that may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep her and her family safe. So now these dozen or so these 15, 16 Muslims, they arrived there in Abyssinia very quietly, low profile, and this was all through the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ told them, when you get there, remain very quiet, keep to yourselves, mind your own business, find a safe place to live, and just kind of do your own thing. Don't, don't disrupt anything. So they do exactly as the Prophet ﷺ instructed them to. And in fact, some of the narrations mentioned that the place that they chose to settle down was not even a major city, a main city. They were living slightly outside of a major city. So that there was a major city nearby to where they, you know, maybe some of the men could work or do some business. They could go to buy any supplies or food or things they would require. But they lived a little bit outside of there to not disrupt any type of community harmony that might be there and not become, you know, the point of, you know, curiosity or contention for that particular community. And this again shows the wisdom of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum taking their situation under consideration and realizing what was pertinent at that time. Now, we come back to Mecca. So now some, but it's a very small number, 15, 16 people. Quraysh were upset enough to send a search party, but once they weren't able to find them, they come back. And what did they decide to do? They basically decided to put tighter clamps on the Muslims and on the city of Mecca itself. Basically, now we need to keep track of these people at all times, and nobody gets out unless we know who is going and who is coming back. So they set up a type of border patrol, and they basically start, you know, um, you know, keeping track of spying and tracking the Muslims in Mecca. And so now all of this is basically going on. So now this is the political climate in the city of Mecca, and they're keeping tabs on all the Muslims and keeping a track of who comes in and who goes out and things like that. Sometime thereafter, and the narration basically mentions that literally. Maybe, you know, in the next month or so, a very, or, or excuse me, two months from then. In, and some, some narrations actually say that this occurred in the month of Ramadan, in the fifth year. So about two years after these Muslims have left, uh, excuse me, two months after these Muslims have left Mecca, an incident occurs. A very powerful, very interesting incident occurs. The Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it's a month of Ramadan, it's a blessed month. Of course, fasting and things like that, these obligations have not been revealed or sent down. Nevertheless, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, and we talked about this in the earlier sessions of the seerah, Shahru Ramadan alladhi unzila fihi al-Quran. That that day of Iqra in the cave of Hira, according to the majority of the scholars, was the month of Ramadan. So there is some significance to this month even at this early juncture of the seerah. And so it is a blessed time. 
And the Prophet of Allah goes into the haram, as is his normal routine. Remember, he has a protection from Abu Talib and Hashim. He goes into the haram, he stands there, you know, goes and kind of finds himself in an ISO corner, there in front of the Kaaba, the Baytullah, and he prays and he does his own thing, and nobody likes it, but they kind of tolerate it. And he just does his own thing. And while the Prophet is praying there, he begins to recite some Qur'an. And for whatever reason, the Prophet of Allah begins reciting this Qur'an out loud. And as he starts reciting, continues reciting this Qur'an out loud, initially some people are irritated and agitated. That alright, now he's going too far. He comes here and he does his thing, whatever he does. You know, we put up with it. Because of Abu Talib, we have no choice. But now he's going to start making noise and trying to make us listen to it, and they start to get agitated. So the narration says some people start to come kind of closer. Kind of converge in on the Prophet ﷺ. And as soon as they get close enough to where they can hear what he's reading, they stop dead in their tracks. And they start listening. And again, through divine revelation, the instruction of Allah, the will of Allah, the Prophet ﷺ starts to raise his voice and volume. Till eventually the Prophet ﷺ is reciting this out loud. And everyone who's there in the haram is quiet, stopped, sitting, standing, wherever they're at. And they're looking at him and they're listening. And everyone's listening, captivated. Something like this hasn't happened in a very long time. Not since the Prophet made a couple of public addresses, like on the mountain of Safa. But even those were very brief. Something as extensive as this, where the Prophet recites like the majority of a, of a, of a decent sized surah, a couple of pages of the Qur'an, and everyone's just quiet, just sitting there listening, fully captivated. First time this is happening. And I actually wanted to share some of the ayat that the Prophet ﷺ is reciting because this is part of the objective or the point that I try to make here in the seerah sessions is that the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ is something that, you know, has been covered of course obviously and it's something that is narrated and mentioned and told and written about. But a lot of times it's just an incident is being reported. It almost seems more like you're reading a newspaper or a Wikipedia entry or an encyclopedia rather than, you, than us experiencing what actually happened. And in order to understand, really, and profoundly experience what that must have been like, it's important that we do interact and we understand exactly what's, what, what was happening there. So the Prophet ﷺ, and the narrations kind of differ as to what ayat, where he was. He was reciting surah number 53. And we know this much for sure that he, the Quraysh were listening from ayah number 19 on. From ayah number 19, from surah number 53, surah Najm, the star. From ayah number 19 on, they were all listening. And the Prophet ﷺ was reciting, now of course the tafsir of this would be very deep and very profound And that maybe inshallah will be a session for another day But what, what I'm going to do here is just basically Explain the basic meaning, translation if you will So at least we understand what, it, what, the, what the Prophet was reciting What Allah was saying What was being understood at least at some level by, these, by the Quraysh Have you ever really sat down to think have y'all, all of you, people of Mecca, have you ever sat down to really think about Allah and Al-Uzza, وَمَنَاتَ ثَالِثَةَ الْأُخْرَى And the idol of Manat, the third one, the other one. These three idols, Allah, Al-Uzza, Al-Manat, these were the main three idols that the Quraysh used to worship. I talked about this in the very early, early sessions of the seerah that we had, where I talked about the religious scene in Arabia, how there were different idols that different areas of Arabia used to primarily worship and that they had built their shrines around them. So the three big ones in Mecca were Allah, Al-Uzza, and Al-Manat. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, have you ever sat down to really think about these three idols that you worship? 
And then you go on to also call the angels the daughters of Allah. But you yourself, you like to have sons. So, Do you say that you should have sons, but God has daughters? This, these are very unique, powerful words. These are words from the Arabic language, but are, were only used in like high-level poetry. And they hadn't been used by common people in common conversation. And so the Prophet ﷺ reciting these ayat was just completely captivating. That where is Muhammad getting this from? Well, of course, obviously, because this is Allah speaking. Tilka idan qismatun diza. This in fact is a very, you know, uh, unbalanced, unjust, unfair division, distribution. In that all of these are nothing but names that you have given to these idols, you and your forefathers gave to these idols. God did not reveal any authoritative, conclusive message that these idols should be given these names and should be worshipped. Most human beings and these people worshipping these idols are only following their assumptions and conjecture. And they follow their desires. And guidance has come to them from their Lord. So what, can a human being just do whatever he feels like doing? And live a life that's based off of wishful thinking. I'll do here whatever I want to do and I'll, uh, God will just hook me up there in the hereafter or there isn't a hereafter or He'll give me what I deserve or what I should, what I want. Can a person just live life off of wishful thinking? وَلِلَّهِ الْآخِرَةُ وَالْأُولَى Remember that to Allah alone belongs the end and the beginning. وَكَمْ مِنْ مَلَكٍ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ لَا تُغْنِي شَفَاعَتُهُمْ شَيْئًا إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ أَنْ يَأْذَنَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ وَيَرْضَى that how many angels are there in the heavens that their intercession will not help these people at all except or unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows or wills or approves of these angels interceding on their behalf. People who do not believe in the akhirah, they're the ones who give these ridiculous feminine names to these angels. These people have no true knowledge. They only follow their own assumptions and their thoughts and ideas, and their thoughts and ideas do not have any grounding. They don't help or benefit them in the least bit. فَأَعْرِضْ عَمَّنْ تَوَلَّى عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَلَمْ يُرِدِ لَلْحَيَاةَ الدُّنْيَا So, O oh Muhammad, turn away from the one who turns away from our remembrance, and that person does not want anything but the life of this world. That person has no interest in the life of the hereafter. ذَلِكَ مَبَلَغُهُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ That is the extent of their knowledge. إِنَّ رَبَّكَ هُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنْ ضَلَّ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ وَهُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنْ اِهْتَدَى Your Lord knows best who is guided and who is astray and who is lost. وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ لِيَجْزِيَ الَّذِينَ أَسَاءُوا بِمَا عَمِلُوا وَيَجْزِيَ الَّذِينَ أَحْسَنُوا بِالْحُسْنَى That for Allah alone is all that which is in the heavens and all that which is in the earth. And He will reward or He will recompense. Those people who do bad with, for what they've done, and those people who do good, Allah will give them something even better in return. That those people, that those people who abstain and stay, those people who abstain and stay away from major sins and really terrible things, Except for maybe thoughts that might cross their hearts or their minds, but they don't act on anything that's bad. Inna rabbaka huwa a'lamu biman dalla an sabili. That excuse me. Inna rabbaka wasi'ul maghfirah. That most definitely for them, your Lord is very vast in His forgiveness. Huwa a'lamu bikum idh ansha'akum min al-ard. He knows best. He knows everything about you since the time that you were raised up from the ground. When you were just fetuses in the wombs of your mother, 
So don't come here talking about speaking high and mighty and being high and mighty about yourself. He knows best who lives his life cognizant of Allah. And this is the part that became very powerful now. So the first part of this was just telling him to reflect and think. Now from here, it becomes very powerful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins to just hammer away at them. Have you looked at the one, reflected on the one who turned away? And the person who maybe gives a little bit or refrains completely from giving anything in return. That does this person have like some knowledge of the unseen or does this person see something that everyone else doesn't? Was this person not informed about what was mentioned in the scripture of Musa? And how Ibrahim lived his life and stood by the promise that he made to Allah? That no soul will bear the burden of another soul. That no human being will, be, will receive anything except what that human being has earned, what that human being has worked for. And that the effort of the human being will very soon be seen. On the Day of Judgment, the effort of the human being will be presented before the human being and he'll be rewarded according to his effort. And then he'll be fully duly rewarded for whatever that person has done. Whatever they presented is what will be given to them in return. That to your Lord is the final return and the final destination. And he is the one who makes people laugh and makes people cry. And he is the one who gives death and gives life. You know, by the way, whenever we talk about life and death, we say life and death, right? So you almost logically assume that it should say, He's the one who gives life and He's the one who gives death. Because you're born and then you die. No, 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 no. But Allah is talking to living people. He is the one that gives death, and then He is the one who will bring back to life. And he alone is the one who created pairs of everything, the male and the female. That he created from a single drop of bodily fluid when it came out from the human body. And that he has taken it upon himself that he will recreate this human being in the life of the hereafter in the same form the human being is here in this world. And he is the one who enriches, blesses the human being. And he is the one who makes the human being, you know, basically is enough for the human being. He is the one that grants fulfillment to the human being. And he is the Lord of the skies and the star that you look up and you gaze at and that you admire. And listen Arabs, you know that there was a nation that lived here amongst you. You're aware of their ruins. That there was a great powerful nation that lived here before you. He is the one that destroyed them before you. And also the people of Thamud who lived in these mountains whose, whose ruins you still walk by till today. And nothing is left of those people. He did not allow anything to remain from those people. And the people of Nuh even before these people. That those people, they were very, very disobedient to Allah. And they crossed the boundary and all they basically crossed all lines and all boundaries with Allah. And that he overturned and threw down the, the villages and the towns of these people. And then rained down upon them fire and stones from the sky. Now think and reflect on how safely and securely you live your lives. Which of the blessings of your Lord do you actually doubt? Do you doubt that you are blessed? Can you, what can you doubt? 
that is around you from the blessing of your Lord. But you know what? This warning and reminder that is being given to you is the same warning and reminder that was given thousands of times before to people that came before you. Azifatil azifa. The quickly approaching day is quickly approaching. Very powerfully. The quickly approaching time is very quickly approaching. Even faster than you can realize. لَيْسَ لَهَا مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ Nobody can remove the difficulty and the trials of that day from you other than Allah. أَفَمِنْ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ تَعْجَبُونَ Are you surprised? Are you shocked to hear all of this? وَتَضْحَكُونَ وَلَا تَبَكُونَ and you point and you laugh at the person reciting this to you, and it does not bring you to tears to hear this. And that you go around proudly, arrogantly living your lives. Humble yourself before Allah and worship only Allah. So this is how this surah concluded. As soon as the Prophet of Allah said the words, you know, so you can imagine everybody on the edge of their seats listening. And especially it's almost as if Allah is directly, and Allah is speaking directly to, humankind, to mankind, to human beings through the book of Allah. But it, these people felt like they were being spoken to directly at that moment by Allah. فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكَ تَتَمَارَى هَذَا نَذِيرٌ مِنَ النُّذْرِ الْأُولَىٰ أَزِفَةِ الْآزِفَةِ لَيْسَ لَهَا مَنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ كَاشِفَةِ أَفَمِنْ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ تَعْجَبُونَ Are you shocked by this? وَتَضْحَكُونَ وَلَا تَبَكُونَ وَأَنْتُمْ سَامِدُونَ You laugh and you don't cry and you go around being arrogant فَاسْجُدُوا لِلَّهِ وَعْبُدُوا Fall into sujood and worship your Lord. And the Prophet ﷺ immediately went into sajda. He fell into sajda before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it said that everybody was on the edge of their seats, listening, just dumbfounded, dumbstruck. And when they saw the Prophet fall into sajda, they just instinctively following after him, everybody that was there in the haram, the vast overwhelming majority of whom were, did not believe in Allah had not accepted Islam. They all fell into sajda as well. The narration even say that Abu Jahl was there. All these people, they fell into sajda. There's an interesting Walid bin Mughira who had had that exchange with the Prophet Arrogance. It actually says that even he didn't want to fall into sajda because he was kind of like, no, I'm not going to do what Muhammad does. But even he felt compelled to do something. So it said that he just kind of reached over on the side, picked up a little bit of dirt and put it on his forehead. Ajeeb. It just had this impact on all these people. They felt like we better do this now before something happens. We better do something now before something happens. And this occurred. Now, the Prophet of Allah comes back up from sajda. Everybody else comes back up from sajda, and it's just this awkward silence, as you can imagine. Everyone's just kind of like, uh, uh. And the Prophet kind of lets them sit in it for a little while. S- sit in it, soak it in. See what happens. You listen to the kalam of Allah, look what it did to you. If this ain't your fitrah talking, then what is it? And people just kind of disperse from there, somewhat confused. Abu Jahl and Walid and uh, Walid bin Mughira and Akhnas bin Shuraiq and Abu Lahab and all these people kind of gathered together in the war room saying, we got to get that PR machine turning. We got to release a press, we got to have a, a little press conference, release a statement. We got to get to work here, man. A couple of hundred people in Mecca, all the leadership of the Quraysh basically just did sujood. And listened to like a bunch of Qur'an and went, did sujood with Muhammad. Like what, what, what are we going to do? And of course, obviously, how creative. They decided to say, oh, Muhammad was reciting all that sorcery and magical incantation and all that stuff. And it basically, he possessed everyone. And basically made everyone fall into sujood. 
He like physically took over everyone's body and made them do sudu. So don't worry, it was a moment of insanity for all of us. All right, we're excused, it wasn't real. And that's basically what happened. But that had a profound impact in, on the people of Makkah. And you see that from here, some very interesting events began to occur from here. But there was, part, part of the reason this of course happened at this time, two months after the migration to Abyssinia, but it had an impact on the migration to Abyssinia as well. Now, something like this doesn't go unnoticed. Something like this doesn't fly under the radar. People know, people hear, people see. People talk. And the word started to spread. Did you hear what happened? A couple of hundred people, all the leaders of Quraysh, basically just accepted Muhammad's religion. And the word, the rumors started to spread outside of Mecca. Eventually to the point where the rumors reached the Muslims in Abyssinia. Small little band of Muslims living quietly undercover there, finally getting away from torture for a couple of months now. Went through a life, you know, threatening journey to reach there. And the news reaches, Quraysh has accepted Islam. So they say, time to go back home. And the narration say that a few of them stayed because maybe those who were unable to travel at that time. But the majority of them, the majority of them out of the 15, 16, at least about 12 of them, 13 of them, most of them, basically make that entire journey all the way back to Mecca. And they reach a little bit outside of Mecca and they stop there. And they meet some people from Mecca. And they talk to them and they're like, man, you guys, you guys are the ones who ran away, aren't you? And they were like, yeah, you know, we left because, you know, we were undergoing all this torture and we heard, mashallah, now everybody's Muslim, so we came back. He's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, uh, Quraysh, all of them accepted Islam, didn't they? Everyone became Muslim, right? And he's like, no, none of that happened. So they're like, well then what did happen? Because we heard something and they're basically informed that what did transpire, what did happen was this, 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 and they tell them the story. And those Muslims are heartbroken. Like, what do we do? Do we go into Makkah if it's the same? Or do we leave? So it said that a few of them came back into Makkah. But most of them, about 10 of them, decided to go back to Abyssinia. And a few of them, a couple of them, came back into Mecca. And decided to just stay in Mecca and tough it out. And when the Prophet saw them, he asked them, Well, why'd you come back? And they tell him, Exactly, we heard these rumors. Nevertheless, what happened because of this, is that now you had a couple of people who went to Abyssinia, talked about the journey, that look, it was a little difficult, but it is doable. Even women were able to undertake this journey. It is doable. At the same time, it's completely safe over there. You got nothing to worry about over there. You live there quietly, you mind your own business, nobody messes with you, nobody asks you what you're doing. Everybody just kind of minds your own business. So now, that, you know, the torture in Mecca continues to intensify day by day, now this starts to become a very serious option. Because now we actually have some direct feedback, some news, some reviews. So now this starts to become an option. And in the next coming weeks, dozens of dozens of Muslims began to leave Mecca in waves. And now they have to leave in small little groups of four and five people. Because remember I told you, they put the clamps down on Mecca? So now they have to slip out a couple of people at a time and they start leaving in waves. And over the next few weeks, basically about you know, another 60 to 70 people leave Mecca to go to Abyssinia. Another, I would say actually more than that, about 80 some odd people leave Mecca to go to Abyssinia to the point where finally the number of people, Muslims in Abyssinia reaches about 100 people. So it's a small little community of about 100 people. There are about 82, 83 men, Muslim men, and about 16 women.
And again, those 16 women are wives of about 16 men, and the rest are all younger men, younger people, you know, people who, uh, young Muslim men who were not married yet, like Musa bin Umayr and people like this, who were leaving because they were being tortured, slaves who were trying to escape because they were undergoing torture. And about a hundred Muslims began to reside there in Abyssinia. And this basically leads up to a major event at that time, um, towards the end of the fifth year of the uh, Nubuwa and Prophethood leading up into the sixth year, where once there are about a hundred people living in Abyssinia, that the Quraysh basically sees, looks around at Makkah and says, Makkah is emptying out from Muslims. And that has a very interesting effect in Mecca, which we'll talk about next in the coming week, inshallah. But what that also does is that also concerns them that they're just going and setting up camps somewhere else. We can't let, that, let them do that. We can't let that happen. So then they decide to do something about it. We gotta mess up the party that's going on over there. We gotta crash this little Muslim party that's going on in Abyssinia. We gotta go and crash that party. And what they exactly decide to do and what transpires and happens, inshallah, we'll talk about in the next coming session. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Um, a, a couple of, uh, I should clarify, a couple of interesting lessons that we do learn from this session are first and foremost, we see the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. We see how well informed and well researched he was. That is a responsibility of leadership. Number two, we see that the Prophet ﷺ is willing to make a personal sacrifice, lose some of his numbers in order for the safety of his followers. Self-sacrifice is another quality of leadership that the Prophet ﷺ exemplified. We also see from this particular narration about how the Prophet ﷺ is a father at the end of the day. And he's worried and he's asking and trying to find out some news about his daughter to make sure that he's safe. That being a religious leader did not preclude him from being a father. And that him being a father and inquiring about his daughter doesn't make him any less of a prophet or a messenger or a leader. But it makes him even more so of one. Because a quality leader will be a quality family man, will be a quality husband and a quality father. And we see that quality here in the Prophet of Allah Lastly and finally, we see and observe in this story the intelligence of even the Muslim community and the instruction that the Prophet gave them where he told them not to show up there and start making a lot of noise. But understand who you are, why you're there and exactly where you're at. That doesn't mean you don't do da'wah. And by the way, in the next session I'm gonna talk about how even the minority Muslims in Abyssinia did do da'wah. And how they were converting people and they eventually brought people to the Prophet to take their shahada and learn from the Prophet ﷺ. But at the same time, da'wah is done with wisdom and hikmah. Understanding your circumstances. You are an oppressed minority escaping torture, trying to find safe passage in somebody else's land, in somebody else's place. Understand who you are. Don't show up acting like you own the place. Don't show up acting like you own the place. But be a little respectful and intelligent and wise about how you go about in conducting yourself. And we find that here in this particular instance as well. And lastly and finally, we see the power of the Book of Allah, the power of the Qur'an. And when it was recited, it would even bring the staunchest of the disbelievers to fall into sujood. What effect does the Qur'an have on us? Does it have that same impact and effect on us? Because if it does, Alhamdulillah, but you know what though, not a real huge accomplishment. Like, oh man, the Qur'an it just has such an impact and effect on me. It's like, that's good, but congratulations, you have the same reaction to the Qur'an that Mushrikun used to. You react to the Qur'an like Abu Jahl did. Like it's not a huge accomplishment. I'm just trying to show you where, how low the bar is for us right now. That if I just sit there and think about the Qur'an and feel affected by the Qur'an, I feel like, oh man, subhanAllah. No, I mean, mushrikun used to be affected by the Qur'an. But we have to really contemplate, the real tragedy would be, if it doesn't even have that effect on us. If it doesn't have that effect on us, that comes from one primary reason. That's probably because we don't understand it, we don't comprehend it, we don't grasp it, we don't reflect and think on it. And that just means we need to invest more time and energy into actually reading the Qur'an, read the translation of the Qur'an, study the meaning of the Qur'an. Sit with scholars when they give to us. Imam Zia has a tafsir class here on a weekly basis. So it's a question I have to ask myself, do I actually come and sit and listen? 
Do I take out time? Somebody else is doing all that work, coming here and explaining the meaning of the Qur'an to me. If I can't grab a Qur'an, a mushaf, and sit down and open it up and just follow along as a scholar kind of spoon feeds me the meaning of the Qur'an for 30 minutes in a week, what really am I doing then? And who else do I have to blame but myself? So it's a real question we have to ask ourselves. And we have to reevaluate our relationship with the Qur'an. And lastly and finally, something that comes from this, the passage, Surah Al-Najm, Surah number 53 that we, taught, that we recited here, is that this surah, it ends with this call from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَاسْجُدُوا لِلَّهِ وَعْبُدُوا Do sujood to Allah alone and worship Allah alone. That it, call, it basically makes a call for us to prostrate, to do sajda before Allah. And therefore, this ayah, this end of the surah, is one of those places in the Qur'an where we are asked to basically perform sajda whenever we read or hear or listen to this particular ayah. We are asked to do sajda before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why when the imam recites it in his prayer, he says, Allahu Akbar, and immediately goes into sajda. If we're reciting the Qur'an, we should do sajda as well. And so... Kind of, first and foremost, we learned that from here. Secondly, for all of us who were here either reciting this ayah or listening to this ayah, inshallah, right here at the conclusion of this class, inshallah, we should make sure that we do do a sajda. We perform at least one sujood before we leave. I know I recited the verse multiple times, but the fiqh of it is that if that verse is recited multiple times or listened to multiple times in one sitting, in one place at one time, only one sajda need be done. Only one such has to be done and it suffices for that. Especially because this is being done for educational purposes. So only one such has to be performed. So please do try to make a sajda before you leave. The fiqh of the sajda to tilawa is very simple, very easy. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to have any type of prerequisite. Basically sit in the tashahud position and you say Allahu Akbar. You do a sajda like normal, any other sajda, subhana rabbi al-a'la, a minimum of three times or more than that in an odd number of times. And then you say Allahu Akbar and you come back up and then you don't have to say salam or anything like that. You just perform one individual sajda on its own by itself and it will basically fulfill the obligation that is upon us because of this ayah and this verse. May Allah give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Do you have to have wudu for that? There's a difference of opinion amongst the scholars whether wudu is required or not, but the majority of scholars say that yes, wudu should be um, acquired, wudu should be performed for this. So if you are in wudu, that's fine. But if you do not have wudu, then quickly make wudu and then perform that such stuff. Jazakumullah khairan. As salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.